Welcome to Vantage Worldwide Australia edition, brought to you by Abacus Worldwide. Vantage examines the opportunities and potential challenges of doing business across the globe. Each month, experts from the Abacus membership share insight into the business environment in their country, providing you with highlights of what is required for international expansion. Join me in welcoming our panelists today. Uh, first off, we have Greg Roloffs. Uh, Craig is an experienced corporate and commercial lawyer. Prior to establishing law elements, Craig worked in leading Australian law and South African law firms since 2000 and is admitted to practice as a legal practitioner in both Australia and South Africa. Law Elements is a boutique corporate and commercial law firm with offices in Brisbane and Sydney. Law Elements primarily acts for listed and unlisted public companies, private companies, and high net worth individuals, both in Australia and internationally. Law Elements specializes in mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, other corporate actions, commercial contracts, and commercial and residential property transactions. We also have on our panel today, Linda Logan, who has over 25 years experience in public practice, working with small to medium businesses of varying industries and high net worth individuals. Starting as a junior accountant and admin support person in a small firm in Cairns, North Queensland, Linda is now the managing director of Charts Partners Chartered Accountants. Charts Partners is a long established business service, services accounting practice focusing on small to medium businesses with a diverse range of clients and focus on building close trusted relationships, helping clients with all aspects of their business and personal affairs. We also have with us Sam Rothberg, uh, who is the director at Alexander Spencer an AFR top 100 accounting firm uh, and based in Melbourne, Australia. Sam has played an integral part uh, in the firm's ongoing expansion, overseeing growth from a team of six to a practice with a team exceeding 30. He enjoys helping people in business succeed, getting clients into the cloud using QBO and Zero, and growing as well as being super, a superannuation specialist. Sam loves helping small businesses grow ensuring asset protection is in place, as well as supporting them through estate planning processes. And last but not least, our moderator today is George Shahinian, uh, who is the senior partner at Economos Chartered Accountants and a director of Econ Financial Services based in Sydney. George manages the business services and advisory needs for a portfolio of medium and large clients, clients across a range of key industries. He has extensive experience in advisory in the real estate and property-related industries, including property development and subdivision, commercial fit-out and refurbishments, building and construction and construction management, as well as real estate agencies. As the founding principal director of the firm's wealth management division, George is also well-versed in offering high net wealth business owners key structuring and wealth creation advice. I will hand it over to George as our moderator and the floor is yours. Thank you, Julia, for that um, great introduction and uh, welcome to all the panelists and everyone else on, on the call. Um, just by way of background, um, I wanna give a bit of an introduction on the Australian economy itself. Um, Australia, the Australian economy is the 14th largest economy in the world. Uh, it has a $1.4 trillion um, GDP. And its per capita GDP is uh, 54,000 US dollars per year. 
Um, we've had 28 years of solid growth until um, the COVID pandemic, but that's only been a blip on our um, on our radar, and we're back into growth this quarter. Um, so I think for the first question, uh, we'll go to you, Linda. Um, Linda, um, what are the largest industries in Australia and what would the opportunities for a foreign company uh, be in those industries? Thank you, George, and thanks, Abacus, for having us today. So Australia has probably five of the largest industries in Australia would be your mining and fuels, agricultural, export, um, our financial markets. So we have the world's fifth largest pool of assets, totaling $2.2 trillion. Um, one of the fastest growing industries actually in Australia, um, and it's particularly um, as we transition to service-based economy is our tertiary education. So foreign students in Australian tertiary education accounts for 7.2% of the world's total ranking, and that ranks us third largest in the world. So the fifth industry would be tourism um, and obviously pre-COVID, while international borders were all open and normal, uh, we were eighth largest in the world and that accounted for um, US $46 billion um, annually. So in terms of the minerals and fuels, that's, that puts Australia at top five in the world and that is uh, totals uh, US $127.7 billion per year. Um, and our agricultural producers, um, we rank 14th in the world there with exports totaling $36.7 billion. So definitely our economy is um, resilient and going well. And um, we are very, very much looking to the future. And um, when we're looking into the future, um, how is Australia placed with the challenges of the fourth industrial revolution? In other words, the IT revolution that we're having at the moment. So pretty well, actually, George. Um, so we have had consistent year-on-year -year growth in research and development, and, and mainly in three, three sections. So private business investment, higher education, and government. So that's government spending. And generally where investment is targeted, significant growth follows. So um, probably Australia's biggest advantage, I think, is that we have a very multicultural and diverse workforce. Um, so almost 30% of our working public were born overseas, highly skilled, um, multilingual, um, very bright, very bright people. Um, Australia's scientific research sector is also a source of strength for our economy. Um, in 20 out of the 22 fields of academic research, we achieved above the global average and mostly that was around 20% above. So it was yeah, we're certainly batting above our average there. Um, in terms of the transition to the service-based economy, um, as, as mentioned earlier, there's a lot of investment and development going into new technologies in agriculture, in education, financial services and health. So we're definitely, definitely ready for the next, the next wave. That's good, it's good to hear. So Sam, a question for you following on from that. Um, uh, how 
what's Australia's uh, innovation uh, credentials? Um, are, what are we ranked in the world and um, what is our major um, scientific research house? Well, George, um, yes, yeah, so um, welcome everyone. I just, yeah, I should say that Australia actually is ranked first for te technological readiness. And that's been um, shown by the Economist Intelligence um, Unit. We have a very high level of skilled workers in various industries. Um, we're currently ranked 10th in the world for skilled labor as our research has shown in 2019. And we have a high expenditure of R&D as percentage of our GDP here in Australia. Uh, Australia probably one, is amongst one of the most innovative countries in the world alongside the US, Japan and um, France. Um, one of our leading companies, the CSIRO, which is actually the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, um, they, rank one, they rank in the top 1% of the world's scientific institutions, uh, which in 14 out of 22 research fields. So they have a proud legacy um, with that company. They've um, invented the fast Wi-Fi, um, AeroGuard, and polymer banknotes, which are the plastic banknotes that are used very much worldwide now, except for maybe the US that I'm aware of. Um, the CSIRO are helping uh, at the moment to find gravitational waves in space. They're growing gluten-free products, um, involved in 3D painting, uh, printing of body parts, and pioneering some new renewable energy sources, just to name a few things. Um, the other area we should consider as well is that we're very high in our higher education investment as a result of Australia having uh, the, the third highest number of universities in the world's top 100 following the UK and the USA. Wow. Um, so with, with regards to the research and development investments, um, how much of that goes into the renewable energy um, areas or renewable energy production areas? So in the last decade, Australia has diversified its um, sources of renewable energy, um, mainly from hydropower, including solar, wind and bioenergy, which is obviously going to be the future for, for us worldwide. Everyone, where everyone's living, we're trying to make a, a better place um, for everyone, be a little bit more green. Um, we've doubled the percentage of total electricity generation produced from these renew renewable sources, and that should just expand further and further as time goes on. Yes, um, a lot more solar roof panels on the, the, the roofs of the Australian houses. Yeah, there are, there are some good incentives here for that too. Um, okay, Craig, one question for you, welcome. Um, in regards to the financial sector and giving us an overview for people who want to do business in Australia, how strong is the financial sector? Thanks, George, and thank you, Abacus, for hosting us today. Uh, George, the Australian financial sector constitutes a significant part of the Australian economy. Um, the estimated value of the Australian finance, financial sector is 9.5 trillion Australian dollars. And uh, the average growth of the sector for the last two decades has been 9% per annum, which really places Australia, you know, positions Australia ideally as a financial centre for the Asia Pacific region. And then in addition to that, the Australia managed fund sector is the fifth largest in the world, and it is supported by the mandatory retirement savings scheme known as superannuation, which we'll be discussing later. Okay. Um, and in regards to foreign investment in this area, 
Um, does Australia attract a lot of foreign investment? Uh, yes, George. Um, Australia's attracted approximately 3.9 trillion Australian dollars, including both foreign portfolio and foreign direct investment. Uh, both foreign portfolio and foreign direct investment has increased by more than 8% per year since the year 2000. And according to the United Nations, Australia was the world's seventh top economy in terms of foreign direct investment inflows in 2019. Um, the majority of foreign direct investment uh, really comes into Australia's mining, agricultural, manufacturing, real estate and financial services industries. Wow. So, so there's a fair bit of foreign investment and we rely on that significantly. We, we certainly like. do. Our economy does tick over on that and hopefully uh, once COVID uh, you know, works itself through, we can get back on the horse. Sounds good. Um, Linda, a question for you. Um, is Australia a business-friendly country for, for, um, for doing business, especially for, for foreign um, companies? Absolutely, George. So Australia, as we know, is a trading nation. Um, and we would say it's one of the most business-friendly countries in the world. Um, also, if you... If you look at the OECD's services trade restrictiveness, restrictiveness index, Australia scored well below the OECD and non-OECD averages in most service industries, which basically demonstrates that Australia is significantly less restricted than the average OECD and non-OECD countries. Um, we have one of the highest digital standards of living in the world our cost of living is, is really low in comparison to the cost of living in other major cities in the Asia Pacific region also, which helps. Um, and, and I guess, finally, Australia is a really secure destination for foreign investment. Um, according to World Bank, we rank highly in terms of ec our economic resilience and the reliab reliability and stability of our financial institutions. Um, I guess gives peace of mind also. So yes, absolutely. We are very business friendly um, and always looking for opportunities. Excellent. So Sam, if I was, if a company was a foreign client was looking to set up in Australia, um, what entities do you, would you recommend to them? I know there are several types, but uh, could you give us a bit of a rundown on that, Sam? Well, George, so in Australia, you can actually incorporate a company which is either partly or wholly owned by a foreign um, company, or you can also register a foreign company conducting business in Australia. Um, you would do that through a body called ASIC, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and that company can either be a proprietary company, which is a private company, or it could be a listed or unlisted public company, depending upon the status of what is required within Australia. Um, there are some deciding factors, obviously, to determine whether you're going to be public or private, and that would need to be determined at that time once some investigation was done. Um, but what's important to know that is that if you have a proprietary company within Australia that is a foreign company, you'll need to have one local director within Australia. If it is a listed public company, you'll need to have two local directors to be on the board in order to satisfy those requirements. It is possible um, if you don't want to incorporate a company for cost reasons or some other reasons like that, you can have a foreign branch, which means the reporting requirements are going to be a lot less, but you'll still have to ensure that you comply with all Australian rules and regulations 
when you operate within Australia. Um, the other thing of note is that in Australia, which is different to many other countries, we have a year-end balance of 30th of June, which is when we do all of our reporting. If the foreign entity requires um, that company to be matched with the same reporting timeline, you can make application to the ASIC body in order to get that approval so that you can match the same dates, whether that be March, December, depending upon the country that you're investing from. Yes, and that process is uh, is not simple, but it's it's normally approved. Uh, it's not. I, it normally, it's very rare you get given a no to it. So I think it will happen, but there is a process to go through. Okay. So if I if I decide that I, I want to incorporate a company, um, what's the process of incorporating the company? So in other words, sure. So, to... yep. Sorry, George. Yes, sure. So obviously you'll come to someone like us, your firm, one, one of the people here, um, we would gather information that we would need from the investor, being the direct, director's full names, addresses, dates of birth and places of birth, um, who the shareholders are going to be, determine whether that's going to be a private or public company. And then we would make application with ASIC, which is the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. That's the body that governs all of our incorporations. Um, once you make application for the company and it gets approved, you get sent a, a certificate of incorporation with a con and you get a constitution and that, con that um, incorporations people have what's called an ACN, it's Australian company number. Um, and once you have that, there's a requirement within the ATO to apply for an ABN, which is an Australian business number. And that allows you to operate that business within Australia, as well as applying for a tax file number, which is what you use when you lodge your tax returns um, at our Australian taxation office. That process is fairly quick in most cases, assuming the names are available, you usually get it either the same day or the following or yeah. the following day. So I, I get this asked by a lot of uh, foreign uh, clients, uh, how easy is it to open a bank account in Australia? Because they- Open the bank account in Australia is relatively easy. Um, I suppose for Australians, it's quite easy. We just have to prove some points of who we are and we we go off and running pretty quickly. Um, so you will need some sort of identification from overseas to prove who you are. Um, it's important to note that Australian banks will require these documents to be authenticated by, by um, someone who can authorise those things in the country that you come from, whether that be their bank, whether that be the, their, uh, a lawyer or some other person has the authority to certify, that will be required. Um, and that sometimes can make everything take a little bit longer, but generally speaking, it's not a problem once you've got all your documentation in place to get that bank account opened up. And obviously we're, our technology is pretty good, so everything can be done online. Um, we don't really write checks here anymore, so all payments are made via an online system. Um, according to the World Bank, just so you're aware, George, um, the report on ease of doing business within Australia ranks fourth worldwide in obtaining credit. So that, Chaining of credit is also very important to ensure that any businesses that do want to operate here can do so and get the facilities that they may need. That's a very important point, obviously, because um, the banking relationships of these clients are important. And normally um, we have four large banks um, that are not uh, international and we have a representation of international banks, but they're not all the banks that would be overseas. That's um, correct. Now, once we've got our ABN, um, we've got a broad-based consumption tax on goods and services called the GST. 
can you give us a, I know we can talk for hours on this, but can you just give us a, uh, you know, the main points regarding this, uh, this tax? Sure, George. Well, GST, which stands for the Goods and Services Tax, which is known as VAT in, in many countries, is a tax that is um, be charged at 10%. Um, that's on all goods, or sorry, it's on most goods and services and rights uh, within a, within a, uh, that's when traded within Australia. The exemption to a GST charge would be if you're exporting, so if the Australian entity exports to overseas, they wouldn't have to charge that 10% that charge. It would be GST free. And the same goes to things like international travel, whether it's sea, tra sea air, whatever. And there are certain other council rates and water, water sewage charges that are also GST free. But generally speaking, most things have a 10% charge on them. What that actually means to a business is that when you charge the customer, let's say it's locally, you'll collect 10% GST on the sale price of the goods or the service. When you spend your money within Australia on running your business, on rent, postage, um, catering fees, whatever it might be, yeah. there'll be a 10% charge. The difference between those two amounts is what needs to be remitted to the Australian Taxation Office. That's normally done once a quarter on a document called the BAS, which is a business activity statement. Um, and that's required for all businesses that turn over greater than $75,000. I'd expect that most businesses that when they come into Australia to invest would easily exceed that sort of turnover. So they, they would be wise to ensure that they are registered when they do their incorporation. Um, there are companies that do turn over either larger than 20 million a year or they may elect for cash flow reasons to lodge their BAS monthly, and they can do so monthly if, if either a requirement is there or from a cash flow point of view or make the business's life easier, uh, they can do that. Um, and uh, it's important to know that this is a business to business thing. So businesses don't actually incur a cost at all. All they're doing is they're charging on that 10%. They're claiming back the 10% they've paid and they remit that difference to the ATO. So the, the end user ends up paying, the final consumer ends up paying the 10% on top. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, okay. Uh, so Sam, uh, a further question. And now, so I've set up the company and I've registered for GST and I've got my ABN and tax file number. Um, and what auditing and financial reporting requirements do, do the companies need to do? Yes, yeah, so with foreign companies, um, the majority of them will need to be um, audited as well as having their financial statements prepared. Uh, and if they are required to be audited, they will need to be prepared and lodged with a sixth body we mentioned earlier within four months of the end of the financial year, whether that be 30 June or another date, as we again mentioned earlier on. Um, there are opportunities for getting exemptions for small proprietary companies in order not to, have, not to be audited and that application can be made by the directors and there is a process to go through which would be explained if that was a, a necessity for the investor coming in into Australia. Yeah. Um, in, in Australia, um, we had Australian branches of entities who are members of a group or part of a parent entity with an annual global income of over a billion. My soldiers would prepare and lodge what we call general purpose financial statements with the Australian tax, with that, with, with, um, with ASIC. 
In certain limited cases, um, as I mentioned earlier, we might be able to get around the problem of, of an audit, but I think that that needs to be addressed when we know more information from yep. the potential business who wants to come into Australia. Yeah, okay. Um, Craig, uh, Craig, just, uh, you there, Craig? Yes, yes, I'm yes. Here. Okay. Um, Craig, with regards, so if the companies are registered and now they're, they're, they're trading in Australia and they want to bring some foreign workers over, what, what are the visa requirements for sponsoring workers in Australia? Uh, thanks, George. Yes, there's two main visas which allow foreign workers to work in Australia. Those are the temporary work visa, the short stay, class 400, and the temporary skills shortage visa, the class 482. Um, in relation to the class 400, the temporary work visa, uh, that, that visa allows the visa holder to work in Australia on behalf of their employer for up to six months. Uh, it does not require the em employer sponsorship, but the activity that the visa applicant intends to undertake must be of a highly specialized and of a non-ongoing nature. Uh, uh, the, the other thing is the visa, the visa applicant must be outside Australia at the time of the lodgement and the grant of the visa. And the proposed activity that the visa applicant intends to undertake in Australia must not have adverse consequences on ongoing employment or training opportunities or conditions for Australian citizens or permanent residents. Um, in relation to the class 482 visa, uh, which is the temporary skill shortage visa, um, that visa allows companies operating in Australia, whether Australian or foreign, uh, to be able to sponsor individuals on a, on a, well, for up to two to four years, depending on the occupational classification of the position. And similarly, with that, with that visa, um, the, the employer would need to prove or provide evidence that, um, that there is no suitable, suitably qualified, readily, readily available candidates in in, in the local Australian labour market before that visa can be granted. Right, okay. So in effect, uh, the, the workers have to be skilled and they have to have special skills to apply for these, the, these visas, I suppose. That's correct. They need to be, they need to be uh, skills that Australian markets, you know, there's just a paucity of those skills in the market. That's correct. Okay, so with regards to, um, free trade agreements. Um, Craig, is, does Australia have free trade agreements? And if they do, which countries do they have them with at the moment? Yes, absolutely. Australia has 14 free trade agreements, uh, which includes the, with the USA, China, Japan, and Singapore. In addition, Australia's free trade agreements currently cover 70% of its trade and, and secures its position. And in my view, that secures its position as a major player in the Asia Pacific economies. Yeah. Yeah, so we do. For with all the major economies, we have free trade agreements. Um, um, is there any um, so is there any rules or regulations that limit foreign investment in Australia? Uh, yes, yes, there is, George. The, the foreign investment in Australia is regulated by the Foreign Investment Review Board. We call it FERB over here in Australia. Certain investments will require FERB approval, depending mostly on three key factors, the nature of the investment, the, the type of the investment, and the identity of the foreign person or entity. In general, investments involving the acquisition of substantial interests in Australia property or assets or direct investments over the designated thresholds would require notification and approval of FERB. Uh, 
Um, this is quite a uh, highly specialized area and we would recommend any foreign entity looking to invest into Australia to get expert advice on this area. Yeah. Craig, so I think they should contact uh, yourself uh, if, if that area, if they need any advice in that area. Absolutely. Um, because before they actually make any um, uh, investment decisions. Um, uh, is the approval process uh, um, is the appro is the approval process easy or is it uh, complicated? How long does it take normally? What's um, what's the process? I think yeah, the FERP approval process usually takes around forty days. The treasurer has thirty days to come to decision and a further ten days to notify the applicant. The applicant the application process can be extended if the treasury treasurer believes more time is request required to assess. The relevant application. The treasurer and FERB may refuse to grant foreign investment approval or impose conditions on approval if they consider such investment to be contrary to Australia's national interest. Right, and there's been a few of those recently. Uh, yes, there has. They certainly have been cracking down on certain countries and, and in certain areas. Yeah. Um, are there limitations in acquiring real estate? So, you know, if I wanted to buy real estate, do I you know, what, what's the process there? Uh, yes, as a foreigner, the acquisition of Australian land over certain monetary thresholds requires FERB approval again. Um, Australian land is defined as either agricultural land, commercial land, residential land and or vacant land. In particular, and subject to certain exemptions, FERB must be notified of all acquisitions of residential land and vacant land by foreign persons, regardless of value. Yeah, so residential land is a significant one, isn't it? So. It is, it is indeed. Um, okay, so if we've bought an investment in Australia, Linda, um, would uh, what are the taxing consequences of dividends, interest and royalties for, for non-residents? Okay, so in terms of dividends, um, you can have fully frank dividends or unfrank dividends. So fully frank dividends are dividends that are paid from the after-tax profits of a company and unfrank dividends are dividends that don't have tax already paid on them. So that they are basically just straight income. So if, if an Australian subsidiary pays a fully frank dividend to a foreign parent, there is no further withholding tax payable because tax has already been paid on that income. If, for example, an unfrank dividend is paid, then there is withholding of 30% on that, on that dividend. Um, royalties are also subject to a 30% withholding tax um, and interest, any interest paid by an Australian company to a foreign non-resident lender entity um, there is a 10% withholding tax imposed. Right, okay. So that's for those particular classes of income. So what's an Australian, what's the corporate rate and uh, for a corporate rate of tax for an Australian company? And how's it calculated? So in Australia, we have two rates, two corporate tax rates and what, the rate that applies to the entity depends on its turnover. So if you have an, uh, an entity has an aggregated turnover of more than 50 million Australian dollars, the tax rate is 30% on profits of that company. If the company has an aggregated turnover of less than 50 million, 
we then need to work out whether or not it's a base rate entity. So a base rate entity is entitled to lower tax. At the moment, it's 26%, and this will fall to 25% from the 30th of June, 2022 onwards. So to work out a base rate and whether or not your company is a base rate entity or not, obviously the first test is it has to be under that 50 million aggregated turnover amount. And then the next test is, its total turnover assessable income cannot be more than 80% passive income. Right, so. So, so passive income, sorry, passive income is income such as royalties, rent, dividends, and, and interest income. So if you have an operating entity that is running a business, it's, it will be a base rate, rate entity. You can have companies that have a mixture of both, but if the passive income is more than 80%, it also has a flat rate of 30%, despite right, so the fact the, that it's under that aggregated turnover level. I get, so you pay the higher rate if you're yes. just a passive income company. Yes, okay. that's right. Okay, so there are other taxes I know in, in Australia, a, a lot of them indirect. Can you just give us a summary of the indirect taxes applicable to the businesses that come that trade in Australia? Yes, absolutely. So the main indirect taxes applicable to business are the goods and services tax, which Sam spoke about earlier. We have customs duty, and we also have some state-based taxes such as land tax, stamp duty, and payroll tax. So as discussed above, um, or previously, I should say, sorry, 10% of the taxable value of goods, services, rights and property in Australia is, is implied. So again, if you're a business, you, you have to work out what the net GST payable is and remit that to the tax office. It's, it's generally the, the end user that pays. With land tax, Land tax is a state-based um, tax that's levied and, and it's not necessary, just to complicate matters, it's not necessarily the same tax in all states. So um, in Queensland, we have, um, we have an exemption for a person's main place of residence and, and there is a, a threshold that you have to get to before you pay tax, land tax as such. So for, for individuals, it's 600,000. So the unimproved land value has to be over 600,000 before you pay any land tax. For entities that own property, it's 350,000. Um, and that's a, a, it's a sliding scale, depending on the value, obviously, of that unimproved land. Um, stamp duty is also um, state-based tax. And it is, again, on a sliding scale. Um, and it can be from 1% up to 4.5% if, if the property um, being transferred or purchased is over a million dollars. Um, and that's at 4.5%. So it's, I, I don't know um, necessarily the different states, but certainly in Queensland, you have a 4.5% on anything above $1 million. And there's also an additional foreign acquirer duty of 7% um, imposed on any foreign persons or entities that purchase property in Queensland. 
Uh, now, pay, payroll tax. Payroll tax is a funny one. So basically we levy tax on businesses that employ, um, I guess, a large workforce. So in Queensland, the payroll tax threshold kicks in if you have um, wages over 1.3 million Australian dollars annually. And again, there is a change in the, the levies um, from, so total wages between 1.3 and 6.5 million, you pay 4.75%. Anything above the 6.5 million, you're paying 4.95% on those wages. Um, and I think the last one, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, uh, customs duty. So this is, um, I believe nationwide, I don't think there's any changes statewide. And this is 5% imposed on the custom value of the goods um, converted to Australian dollars. Um, it's, it's important to remember that that may change, that rate may change if there's a, a fair trade agreement or orders in place. Now, so the reality is that um, if, if the state-based, if you want to know more about each of the state-based taxes for Queensland, they should be speaking to you, Linda, and in Victoria, Sam, they should be speaking to you. Um, and in New South Wales, they can drop me a line if they want. Um, they are significantly different in some cases. So um, there's, uh, you know, it is good to, you know, uh, drop us a line before you buy the, the assets because for foreigners, there are some um, extra levies. Um, um, so Sam, with regards to um, asset rich companies, because I think there are some rules for asset rich companies, um, are, are there levy, how are the levies and stamp duties calculated um, and uh, are they on a state basis or a federal basis? So there are, there are several taxes to have a think about, George. Um, from a, And I should probably just say an asset-rich company is basically one where their major assets are a property of some sort. Uh, and when you purchase that property, there is stamp duty, as was mentioned earlier by both you and by Linda. Um, from my case, being in Victoria, um, the stamp duty will range depending upon the levels between... There are ranges between 250 and 600,000, 600,000 to a mil and one mil to 1.8 and then over 1.8. Just to give a broad base view of a large property, if it's over 1.8 million, you're paying about five and a half percent, or we in Australia will pay five and a half percent stamp duty on that unimproved land value of that property. But if you're a foreigner, you will be paying an extra 8% on top in, in land and um, in stamp duty. So that, Wise, why with George, what you mentioned about contacting us first is really important because those additional on costs can make or break the decision to actually purchase that property. Yep. Um, when you have that land rich asset, people think, or oh, if I just transfer the shares rather than sell the property, I might be able to get around those stamp duty issues, but that's actually not the case because you still are, are charged the same stamp duty levies whether you transfer the property or the shares in the company that actually own uh, that property. Uh, the, and the other tax that you should have a think about is when we sell properties or any assets within Australia with it, where they make money, you will potentially make a capital gain, which will require capital gains tax to be levied on that company. And so again, some thought and process needs to be thought about before you sell it, come, come to one of us and have a chat with us about it. If you've made a loss, well, not that not it's great to make a loss, but obviously you won't pay any any tax and those those losses will carry forward to future capital gains to be made in the future. 
right okay so there's a lot to think about before you you you, you buy a property definitely um so for individuals sam what what's the what's the tax rate for individuals in australia um both residents and non-residents so. sure so within australia if you're a tax resident i think so we're talking now about individuals not companies if you're yep. a, a a tax resident for australian purposes um, we have a sliding scale that we work in in Australia. So for the first eighteen thousand two hundred dollars, you don't pay any tax at all. Um, between eighteen two and forty five thousand, you're paying about nineteen cents in the dollar in that bracket. From forty five to one hundred twenty, you're paying about thirty two and a half cents. One hundred twenty to one hundred eighty, you're paying thirty seven, and over one hundred eighty, you then get charged forty five cents in the dollar on that excess. So it is a sliding scale. And again, assuming you're a resident, you'll get charged an additional 2% on top, which is our Medicare levy to help fund our, our medical expenses that we uh, will need as, as um, we go to the doctors and, and hospitals. If you are a non-resident, the scales are very different. So a non-resident of Australia would be, would, uh, be charged 32 and a half cents for the first $120,000 of income that they earned. It would then go up to 37 cents to the dollar between 120 and $180,000. And over 180, you'd be charged 45 cents in the dollar for that excess over $180,000. So being a non-resident will have a huge impact on the tax consequences of what you'd be required yeah. to pay. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so Linda, there's everyone asks me about the compulsory uh, retirement saving scheme or superannuation as we call it. Um, in Australia. Can you give us a rundown of how that works and um, uh, what people should be mindful of because it is an on cost to employment? Um. Absolutely. So as you mentioned in Australia, we have a superannuation scheme, but most Australians call it super because we shorten everything. So it's basically an essential, it's an a system of compulsory savings towards an individual's retirement. So it's an additional charge on top of wages that are paid to employees, um, that employers pay a 9.5% on top of the wage into a compulsory superannuation fund. So accounts are set up for the employees. The employees get to choose which fund they want their super placed into. And then the employer, what, they pay their wages on a weekly, monthly, fortnightly basis. And generally every three months, a payment is made across um, into that super fund of the additional 9.5% on top of the wage. Um, it's, it's actually superannuation in Australia is, it's complex behind the scenes, I guess, but once you get your system set up, it's basically, any employee that's earning over $450 a month, a calendar month, super is paid at 9.5% on that as an additional payment. There is an upper cap. So if you have individuals that are on high, high taxable income, so high wages, um, the, the employer is only required to pay super on those wages up to a total of 228,360 per annum. Um, and that's worked out on a monthly basis. So um, it's because it's an employee benefit, it has to be paid. And there's some very um, 
there's some fairly bad um, penalties, etc. if it's not paid. Um, but yes, it's certainly something to keep in mind when you're employing people in Australia. If their wage is 50,000, it's actually not going to be just 50,000, it's 9.5% on top of that, so. So, um, Craig, so when we employ people, um, employment law is always a concern for foreign businesses setting up in other, other countries. Um, can you provide us an overview of the current employment law in Australia, just a framework? But, um, yes, employment law in Australia is governed by both common law and statute. Um, it's common law in terms of employment contracts for those employees who are earning over a circa 130,000 Australian dollars. For those employees who are earning less than that amount, you, you have uh, both federal and state legislation that um, governs the, the, that relationship between the employer and the employee. Um, you know, the most, uh, obviously the most significant of that legislation is the Federal Fair Work Act, um, which um, has introduced some key features, which includes uh, the introduction of the national minimum wage, the 10 national employment, employment standards, which are statutory minimum terms and conditions of employment, you know, such as your maximum weekly hours of work, your unpaid parental, your right to unpaid parental leave, your, you know, your four weeks paid annual leave, right to personal leave, you know, long service leave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Fair Work Act also, you know, provides for modern awards, which provide additional minimum terms and conditions for those employees covered by, by those uh, applicable modern awards. Um, it also provides a system for the making of collective employment agreements, now called enterprise agreements. It allows for the broader rights for unions to enter workplaces and access information pertaining to employees, including the right to enter a workplace and hold discussions with employees and the rights to apply, you know, the relevant provisions under the Act for access to non-union member employee records. Um, it also, it also deals, it also caters for a category of rights called general protections, which covers not only the right to freedom of association, but also the right not to be treated adversely because such individual uh, has a workplace right, the right not to be subject to dis discriminatory or wrongful treatment, coercion, misrepresentation, and the rights not to be subject to unlawful termination or sham contracting arrangements. So, so there is a lot to think about in that employment area. Um, so with, with intellectual property, um, what level of protection do, does um, Australia offer for companies wishing to bring their intellectual property into our market? Um, thanks, George. Yes, Australia provides protection of intellectual property mainly in the form of registered trademarks, copyrights, patents, and designs. Australia is a party to many of the international intellectual property treaties, intellectual property treaties uh, administered by the World Intellectual Property Organization, which we call WIPO. Uh, these treaties allow intellectual property registered in foreign jurisdictions to be easily registered for protection in Australia. Although intellectual property is best protected through registration, uh, infringement of unregistered trademarks can also uh, be protected under Australian common law through passing off actions. Yep. Uh, under Australian law, in some circumstances, uh, information communicated in confidence is not allowed to be utilized or disclosed without the person who is giving that information's consent. Well, that's... Uh... So there is fair, a fair bit of protection on the intellectual property side, isn't there? It absolutely is.
And with consumer law, the other protection side for individuals and corporations, what are the main features of consumer law in Australia? Um, consumer law in Australia is governed by the Competition and Consumer Act, and that act is policed by the Australia Competition and Consumer Commission. Um, uh, this, uh, you know, this 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 legislation was introduced to you know to regulate a range of unfair trade practices and prohibit you know practices such as misleading or deceptive conduct, uh, unconscionable conduct in business to business dealings and in transactions with consumers, uh, unfair contract terms contained in standard firm consumer contracts or small business contracts. Um, you know, those those would be void. Um, and it also deals with consumer guarantees as well in relation to cer certain, you know, the supply of goods or services to consumers, uh, which require, for example, that the supplier has proper title to the goods being sold, the goods conform to their description, the goods are of acceptable quality, and the goods are serv and services are reasonable fit for purpose, for which the consumer makes known to the supplier, and the goods comply with any given, you know, any sample given. Um, also, to note, uh, any attempt to exclude, restrict, or modify a consumer guarantee would be void under this legislation. Uh, also, in addition to this, in addition, the same legislation prevents anti-competitive conduct in Australia. Uh, this prevents entities from using practices which would give them an unfair advantage over others within the same market, such as uh, cartel conduct and minimum resale price maintenance. Right. Okay. All right, I think that brings us to the end of our hour. So I'd like to thank Craig, uh, Linda and Sam for joining me today. Um, thank Abacus for putting on this uh, uh, Zoom conference for us to talk about doing business in Australia. And I'll pass it back to Julio to um, close out the, um, the Zoom meeting. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Appreciate you. Uh, I want to thank you again. Um, uh, thank you to our panel. Uh, thank you to our audience also for joining us today. This has been Vantage Worldwide Australia edition, again brought to you by Abacus Worldwide. So please don't forget to find other episodes in the series on your favorite podcast app.